The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. All right, ready, uh, ready for the Word of God? Yeah. All right, here we go. Um, let's talk about um, this global crisis that's happening. I'm sure many of you will know this just by reading the news. A global crisis in the availability of uh, counterfeit consumer goods. In a 2008 study, the International Chamber of Commerce estimated the global value of all counterfeit goods. Listen to this. This is 2008. At, uh, estimated it at $650 billion U.S. annual. Projected that that number would soar, this is where it kind of sits today, $1.77 trillion U.S. uh, worldwide. Uh, Counterfeit products exist in virtually every area. Uh, Believe it or not, counterfeit food and beverages. Uh, Counterfeit clothes, shoes, pharmaceuticals, electronics, auto parts, toys, and of course currency. And according to the very respected publication, The Economist, counterfeit products make up a 5 to 7% of world trade and cost the global economy about 2.5 million jobs. In 2013, this uh, became a really local issue for us uh, when arrests were made at the uh, 400 market just south of here as part of a province-wide sting on counterfeit goods. Now, because this is uh, obviously from from what I just said, this is a huge economic issue for the global economy. Uh, But beyond that, this is also a social justice issue because um, largely the counterfeit uh, consumer goods industry is being run by organized crime. And they use um, forced labor, they use child labor in the countries in which they manufacture these counterfeit goods. And so uh, there is a concerted effort, there are websites available to help us identify a counterfeit goods to make sure that what we're getting is the real thing. And so, uh, for example, if you want to spot a knockoff, uh, Nike shoe, a one site a website would provide 10 things to look for in a counterfeit Nike. The uh, Montreal Canadian some time ago published a website and had an effort underway to counter uh, all of the, the flooding of the market of uh, bogus uh, sportswear, Montreal Canadiens gear, and so they provided a page and what to look for in counterfeit jerseys. And I wonder if I were to put up a real and a counterfeit right now, if you'd be able to tell the difference. In fact, why don't we we try that right now? You want to try that right now? All right, Hillary and Kelly are going to come up here. Let's welcome them right now. And um, Hillary, why don't you come right here and and Kelly right here. All right, so it's it's spring. The Jays are in spring training. We really love spring, don't we? And we're hoping it's coming super soon. And and the fact that the Jays are getting ready for this season tells us that it's real soon. Now, one of these jerseys is an authentic Jays jersey. And one of these jerseys is a knockoff that was purchased by one of my family members on Alibaba. (laughs) Which, by the way, is one of the first clues that you have something that's counterfeit, that you bought it on Alibaba. 
So, um, so let's just vote. You want to vote? We don't often vote at Harvest, so this is the only time we ever do. So um, we're, we're going to vote on the fake. Which one? You're just going to raise your hand. Which one do you think is the fake? Do you think that uh, this, let's turn, let's do a little runway thing. Just give us a little, a little turn here, you see. Do you think the Donaldson jersey here that Hillary is wearing is, is the fake? Or do you think that the R.A. Dickey jersey that Kelly is wearing is the fake? So how many people think this one is the fake one? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Nice and high. All right, good number of people. How many of you think this one is the fake one? Okay, I think more people think this is the fake one, and I'm not sure what you see in that that you think that this one is, but you would be correct. This is the fake one right here. So let's thank them, and... um... Now, you can see how difficult it is, though, and how close they look, and in a crowd, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. You have to examine it really closely to look at the label and look at the stitching and look at various other markers on the jersey to know whether or not it's a a fake. Now our concern here this morning is for counterfeits of a different kind. And how easily we could spot such counterfeits. These are people who latch on to the church, who latch on to Jesus in a sense, but who are never truly converted, never truly saved. They may at first glance uh, look the part and even act the part, but they are knockoffs of the genuine article. And with a bit of coaching from the Word of God, we can spot a fake. We can spot the poser, the counterfeit, the knockoff. And in this weekend's passage, Luke 14, Jesus gives us some things to look for in a professing believer, professing believer, to see if he or she is genuine or not. And so while we're going after this question right here, what makes for a genuine disciple of Jesus? Now having said this, I don't want you to miss this part. This isn't about giving you the tools to spot fakes around you, as if now you get to go on some kind of hunt to find counterfeit Christians in your small group and in the church. It's, it's, It's much less about that and much more about you examining your own life to determine whether or not you are counterfeit or a genuine disciple of Jesus. Sound good? All right, that's what we're going to go after. So let's read the text today. This is Luke 14, uh, 25 to the end of the chapter. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Father, help us um, today uh, to not only look the part, but to be the, the real thing. And may we all be prepared uh, to believe what we need to believe and to do what we need to do to have Jesus at the center of our lives, to know with certainty that we are his. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? All right. Let's look at this. A genuine dis disciple, that's what we're going to be describing here, what Jesus is going to be describing for us. Let's start with this. A genuine disciple loves Jesus more than any other. Now, the reason why Jesus is saying what he's saying in this particular passage is because his popularity is continuing to grow at really an exponential rate. And these great crowds, we see in verse 25, in fact, it says that this great crowd is following him. He's walking along the way. He's making himself to the making his way to the next place. And this huge crowd is following him. And you can understand why. He's been challenging the status quo. He's been challenging the religious leaders of the day. He's going after people that had so maligned and marginalized the masses that the masses are loving him. And so in that sense, you kind of could look at Jesus and say he's a bit of a revolutionary. I thought about some revolutionaries of the last uh, 100 years, uh, maybe the last 50 years, 60 years. Um, you think of Gandhi in India who had great crowds who followed him and who listened to him and he inspired a nation and he moved them towards independence. Or you think of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights activist that he was and the great orations that he spoke and the way he rallied a nation to realize what they had been doing to minorities in their own country. And you think about these crowds that they had gathered challenging the status quo. And so in that sense, you kind of look at Jesus and you just go, like, he seems like a revolutionary. He's gathering a big crowd. But Jesus was far more than all of that. He was aiming for more than the independence of a country. He was aiming for more than the civil rights of minorities. He was going for something far greater. And so as his crowd was following him, he wasn't just uh, content to kind of uh, rally them or to create this enthusiasm in the crowd. He wanted to make sure that those who were following him were actually willing to follow him under the terms that he was setting. He wanted to make sure that the great crowds were serious and not just jumping on the Jesus bandwagon, not just fired up for all the wrong reasons. And so notice what it says here in verse 25, he turned and said to them, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Like, I, I want to shake my head and go, what? Jesus, what? So, so I looked at this word hate because then I'm, I'm hoping that maybe the definition of this word hate is something that's going to help me overcome this rather harsh thing that Jesus said. That's what I'll do. I'll define the word hate and I'll find out it doesn't mean hate. Definition of hate, original word here, uh, to despise, to dislike strongly, to have an aversion toward and hostility toward. Uh, no, no help there. So it, it, actually, it actually means 
hey. And I, I have in my mind that Jesus actually wants me to love these people, that Jesus wants me to be a good member of a family. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But he actually intends to say hate here, and he's using a device that was common in Semitic literature. It was common in, in Hebrew literary expression, which is really saying this, and this is what you need to write down about this verse. You must love your family less than you love me. That's what Jesus is saying. You must love your family less than you love me. And so there's a little hyperbole in here for sure. And he's using an extreme word, hate, to loudly communicate just how critical it is to love Jesus first and more. Did you get that? To love Jesus first and more. First and most. What could communicate that more than saying, you have to hate your mother? I'm kind of sorry this message doesn't land on Mother's Day. It would make the point even stronger. But, but we would say it like this, in comparison, maybe this will help, in comparison to your love for Jesus, it's like you hate your family. The gap is that big. And, and Jesus wanted his would-be followers to really understand the depth of love they must have for him and the extent to which they would be willing to go to express that love for Jesus. And frankly, um, the application isn't hard here. Some, maybe even in this room, some do love their families more than they love Jesus. And Jesus is saying that's a problem. I mean, if you want to follow him, that's a problem. Let me give you some examples. I intend likely to offend some people with these. Uh, first of all, those um, who would walk away, they would make a faith commitment, maybe start to come, hear the message, make a profession of faith. And then they start to get some, some pressure for that. They make a, an initial faith commitment, but then they walk away from it because of family pressure, because their spouse doesn't like the fact that they're becoming a Jesus freak or, or that their kids put pressure on or their parents put pressure on, and so they walk away from it. And in essence, what they're saying is, I, I love my family more than I love Jesus. Or secondly, people who um, refuse to be baptized because of some family tradition. I was raised in this tradition, and I know what the Bible says about baptism. I know baptism refers to immersion. I know that it refers to immersion after a person makes a faith commitment to Christ. There's just no other kinds of baptism that are pictured in the Scripture. There just aren't. You make a commitment to Christ, you get baptized, it's by immersion every time. But I'm not going to be baptized because my family tradition... I don't want to dishonor my parents. And I might suggest that maybe that just indicates that you love your family and your traditions more than you love Jesus. Or third, those who would marry an unbeliever. So lonely in their singleness, I, I don't mean to demean that at all but that you're willing to circumvent the things that God has said about not being unequally yoked to an unbeliever, that you would cherish marriage and your spouse more than you would cherish Jesus in that way. 
rather than trusting him for his plan, his perfect plan for you. Or fourth, uh, for sure this one is going to offend somebody. Uh, Those who cater to their kids' activities and wishes rather than prioritizing their involvement in the church. Dance, sports, whatever it is. The kids come first and church and Christ come second. Or fifth, um, those who uh, won't serve Christ, won't find a place of service, won't join a small group because, um, you know, we just got married. Uh, we, just, we just had a baby. Uh, we just retired and, and we're hoping to have some time for ourselves. And what you're saying with each of those is um, a family before Jesus. I love my family more than I love the things that Jesus has said in his word. Now, if any of those are your thing, I would simply ask you, again, I'm just trying to examine my own life through all of this, and I would invite you to do the same, but I would ask you to ask the question, how do you think that your choice is to put family before Jesus? How do you think that reflects on your love for Jesus, on your professed love for Jesus? Do you love your family more than him? Now, for sure, and I said I would come back to this, if you take a passage like Ephesians 5 and 6, for example, there's some wonderful exhortations there about family. Some great teaching for us about what it means to actually love your family. Jesus wants you, it needs to be said loud and clear, uh, husbands, Jesus wants you to love your wife. Amen? Husbands, Jesus wants you to love your wife. And, And wives... He wants you to submit to and respect your husband and, and in doing so to express your love for him. Uh, children of all ages, regardless of marital status, you are to honor your father and mother. It is a command of scripture and one that comes with a promise. And parents, you are to rear your children in the ways of the Lord and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And these are all commands from the Lord in his word Marriage reflects the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. Family is God's idea. He established it. And he wants families to be strong. He's pro-family. But if you love your family more than you love Jesus, what you have done is you've set up an idol in your life. And you're worshiping it. And you may be proving yourself to be a counterfeit. But here's what's cool about this. If you put Jesus first and you love him most, if you do that, then it follows that you're going to be a better husband. You're going to be a better wife. You're going to be a better parent. You're going to be a better kid. You're going to be a better brother. You're going to be a better sister. Put Jesus first. Love him most. And your family will be cherished in the way that God intends for your family to be Cherish so love Jesus more than any other. All right, a genuine disciple ready to move on. A genuine disciple also follows Jesus uh, no matter what. Now I've been um, I've been doing this for um, I don't know twenty four years in pastoral work, and here's what I've seen: um, circumstances. We're going to talk about circumstances right now. The circumstances of life, life situations, 
devastating the would-be faith of would-be followers. People let circumstances crush their faith. I've seen that time and time again. And I've heard things like this from those whose faith was being crushed by circumstances. These are the kinds of things you hear. God has dealt me a bad hand. If God is love, why does it appear that he hates me so much? I've, I've heard those things, and I'm sure some of you have as well. And if we have the idea that following Jesus provides ease of life and only good things come our way when we follow him, then we are believing a false gospel. That is not what God guarantees us. And in fact, this is what Jesus said. Look at verse 27 now. Whoever does not bear his own cross... That part should be underlined or highlighted. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me or follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, this is what we're trying to do in this message. We're trying to lock down what it means to be a genuine, genuine disciple of, of, of Jesus. And he says, if, if you're not bearing a cross, if you're not bearing your cross and following, then you're not a disciple. And when he, when he says this about the cross, you have to understand that at this particular moment when Jesus is speaking to his original audience, they don't have any idea he's gonna die on a cross. They don't have that frame of reference. They're just hearing him speak about this Roman method of execution that was terrorizing the Jewish people. That's all they know. We, 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 we stand on the other side of that historical event and we look back on the cross and we have the complete revelation of what God was doing through that cross. We know that it was redemptive. We know that Jesus died on the cross. We know he was resurrected on the third day. We know that he, uh, he, he, he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God and we know he's coming back. We have the full redemptive theological package. We understand. And so when we look at the cross, we think redemption. We think salvation, we think forgiveness, we think healing. Those are the categories that flow out of the cross for us. But now he's mentioning the cross to people who have no clue about any of that. And so, so we have to ask the question, even just imagine for a few minutes, what are they thinking? When Jesus says, you have to bear your cross. So I wrote down a few things here. Maybe um, I imagine that they're maybe thinking about the agony of it. It was an extremely uh, painful method of execution. It was um, excruciating in every way. It uh, was designed, in fact, to an afflict the uh, most amount of pain possible. We have in the gospel record that Jesus only survived uh, six hours on the cross. And uh, we... Um, we suspect that's because he was, he was dying for your sin and for mine. And so all the weight of that on him, he only lasted six hours. But in fact, Roman execution would go on for hours and hours and hours. When, when, um, uh, when it was discovered that Jesus was dead after six hours in the gospel, uh, people were surprised by that. In fact, execution was designed um, to linger for days. And so it's easy to imagine that as Jesus says here... Um, that you have to bear your cross, that, that maybe we're thinking about the agony of bearing the cross, the, the pain of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, then I, I wrote down this. Maybe, maybe they're thinking, 
about the shame that was attached to the condemned man. They, they, in fact, were required, and again, we see this in the gospel, the condemned man, after he was uh, beaten, after he was uh, convicted and then beaten, the cross beam of the method of execution of the cross was placed on his shoulders, and he was compelled to carry it through the streets of Jerusalem to the place of execution outside of the city. You know that Jesus was so badly mutilated and beaten that he couldn't even carry the cross beam and Simon the Cyrene was pressed into service to carry it the rest of the way. But the whole effort, the whole means was designed to humiliate. The accused, in fact, was stripped of all their clothing and stripped of all of their dignity as they were executed very publicly. So maybe they're thinking of the shame of the whole thing. And then I wrote down the word loss. You see, once the process started, everyone knew that this was a one-way trip. As the old song lyric says, no turning back. No turning back. Whatever else happens around the accused, condemned man, he will follow this path no matter what. His uh, job, whatever he did for a living, whatever trade he had, no longer matters. He's not going to work the next day. Whatever friends and family he had, he's, he's never going to sit down with them at a meal again. Those relationships are over. Whatever, whatever wealth he had is gone Whatever status in the community has been erased. His plans for the future, no more. In fact, all of the other circumstances of his life are now completely irrelevant. He's going to the cross. The only thing that matters to him now is getting there and hoping that death comes quickly. Because everything for him is loss. Now think of those three words again. Agony, shame, and loss. The agony you bear, the shame you face, the loss you suffer for Jesus. Because all of those are in play for every follower of Christ, these circumstances will not, let me say it with absolute confidence, these circumstances will not hinder the walk in any way of a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. No amount of agony will dissuade us from following him. No amount of shame that we might bear for the name of Christ for following him will stop us from following him. No amount of loss in our life. You could take it all. But as long as I have Jesus, I'm good. No amount of these circumstances could ever dissuade a genuine Christ follower from continuing to walk with him. And so you cannot, if you're testing this in your own life, you, you can't let any circumstance ever interrupt your faith. 
Can't take you away from following him. Not, not illness, not your own, not the illness of another one, not uh, of another loved one, not, not the death of a loved one and the grief that comes with it. That's not gonna crush my faith. No job loss, no financial setbacks, or even, even lifelong poverty itself would not be enough to dissuade me, to turn me back. I would never let the words of naysayers or of a culture that hates Jesus and his followers cause me to turn away from him. Instead, actually, it's this. Those circumstances, the the agony, the shame, the loss, all of it, they don't drive me away from Jesus. They actually drive me to him. When I'm a genuine Christ follower and I'm facing loss, I'm facing pain, I'm, I'm, I'm facing shame, that drives me closer to Jesus. And we have a wonderful picture of this in Luke 23 where Jesus is being crucified and on his right side and on his left side are two criminals who actually are deserving of being crucified for what they had done. And on the one side you have one criminal who's continuing to malign Jesus and, and, and to, to shout taunts at him even while he's being crucified. He's allowing the circumstances of his life to crush any faith that might be there. But on the other side of him, a man who's facing the agony, facing the shame, and facing the loss, who allows those circumstances in his life to say to Jesus, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? And Jesus turned to him and said, I tell you the truth. This day, you're going to be with me in paradise. The circumstances he was facing drove him to Jesus and he proved himself to be a genuine disciple of Christ in that very moment. Loved ones, when trials take you into the valley of the shadow of death, that's when you, as a genuine disciple of Christ, you double down and you press in closer to Jesus and you remind yourself, as the psalmist did, that I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff They comfort me. And you follow Jesus into that valley no matter what. That's what a genuine disciple does. All right, love Jesus more than any other. Follow Jesus no matter what. And um, look at this next. The genuine disciple goes all in for Jesus uh, to the end. Are you all in for Jesus? What we're really talking about here is perseverance or endurance. Um, This is also a mark of a genuine disciple. Ultimately, uh, you know, we're all going to know. You say, how do I know if someone's a genuine disciple? Well, uh, perseverance seems to be one of the leading markers of that. You're going to know because on the last day, when we're standing with Jesus, when we've persevered, and you look around and you see, oh, these are the ones. These are the ones who endured to the end. These are the ones who were genuinely saved all along. In fact, Jesus said as much. Uh, this is in Matthew 24, 13, where he said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
And to make his point here, Jesus told two parables about building a tower in verses 28, 29, and 30. Just read those. And, um, and, and then waging war in verses 31 and 32. And the point of both is that we would, notice this in verse 28, you should have this little phrase underlined, that we would count the cost. We should count the cost. And we count the cost so that we make sure we have enough to make it to the end, to complete our journey with Christ. We want to make it all the way. So you want to have, to use the two stories here now, the first one about a tower, you want to have the cash enough to complete the job, to complete the tower. Because you don't want people saying, as Jesus says here, this man began to build, he wasn't able to finish. What a fool, what an idiot. He started out, but he didn't get it done. He didn't count the cost. Or verse 31, this king going out to encounter another king in war. His sentries come back. There's an army marching this way. There's a king coming against us. How many troops are? There's 20,000. How many do we have? 10,000. Do we have the high ground? Do we have the advantage? Do you think we can take them? Are they mighty warriors? Do we have enough machines of war? He does a calculation. He counts the cost. And at the end he goes, I, we can't do it. Send some emissaries out to negotiate a peace treaty with them. King counted the cost. The point of both stories is, have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Because if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to have a sense that this is, as it states in the point, this is an all-in proposition. There are no part-time Christians. There are none. No part-time Christians. It should never come off of our lips. We should never be saying this. You know, Jesus is part of my life. Jesus is part of my life. Jesus is a big part of my life. He's not a part of your life. Jesus, it's literally all or nothing. It's, it's, it's zero or it's everything. Jesus isn't part of your life. Listen, he is your life. Apart from Jesus, you have the condemnation of death hanging over you. You are a dead man walking without Jesus. He is your life, not part of your life. He needs to be everything. You have to have a sense that this is an all-in proposition. You have to count the cost of following him. Maybe this will be helpful um, for us as we seek to understand this even greater. Um, Many of you will know that I I love reading history of World War II. And I'm a huge uh, Winston Churchill fan, a big fan. And uh, during the Second World War, uh, Churchill became the prime minister in May of 1940. For those of you who know anything of, about uh, the war, it started in September of 1939, but it wasn't until eight months later. Um, uh, the government of the day in the United Kingdom had failed, and um, uh, Churchill took over as prime minister. And in his first speech, he outlined for the nation in very stark terms what it would cost for them to get to the end and be victorious. In essence, what Churchill was doing is is counting the cost for them and then laying it out and saying, this is what it's going to be. Are you in or are you not? And I thought it'd be helpful for us to listen to Churchill 
for a minute and six seconds. I would say to the House, and I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might, with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be, but without victory there is no survival. Without victory, there is no survival. It was those words and it was Churchill's inspiring leadership that actually caused the people of the United Kingdom and of her empire to rise up and to meet the challenge that was in front of them. The people of the United Kingdom and of the Commonwealth were declared all in. The cost was counted. Victory at all costs, Churchill said. Victory in spite of all terror, Churchill said. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, no survival. And in the greater war, uh, the more critical war, the eternal war that you and I are a part of as the followers of Christ, the war on sin and death, is all of this not true? Is Churchill not speaking to us? Jesus, when, when he says here that we need to count the cost, is, is really saying that this is a call to sacrifice. And are you in? Notice what he says, verse 33. If any one of you Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you're not prepared to sacrifice everything for Jesus, then you can't be his. Now, if Churchill could rouse a nation to sacrifice, saying, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat... He's talking about the sacrifices that the people of the United Kingdom needed to make. He's inspiring them to fight and to contribute to the fight in a sacrificial way, in an all-in kind of way. And that happened. The history is clear how the entire people rallied to defeat the menace in Europe. How much more should we as the followers of Christ with the greater conflict in front of us not be willing to do the same? How could we not engage the same sacrificial level as the disciples of the King of, King, as, uh, King of Kings as his soldiers? We have to count the cost in every 
in every area of our life, the, the classic trilogy of, 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 of time, treasures, and talent. That we have to be all in in terms of our time. That doesn't mean that every waking minute I need to be at the church or with the church or doing ministry, churchy kind of things. That's not what it means at all. But it means that in every aspect of my life, with every minute of my day, every hour that goes by, every day that I live, that I'm going to give an account for all of that to the Lord, not just the Christian part. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. So as you look at your day, as you look at your week, and you say, am I investing all of this for the Lord? I know you need to go to your jobs. You're not particularly going to jobs that are Christian jobs. They're not in ministry. But there, in that workplace, do you see yourself as a representative of Jesus Christ? Do you see that as kingdom work? Do you see yourself as an ambassador of Christ in that workplace? Every minute of your day belongs to him if you're a genuine follower of Christ. Uh, but your talents, everybody here has talents, everybody has abilities or gifts of the Holy Spirit in their life and are, are you leveraging those to the advantage of the kingdom in every way you possibly can or are you sitting on some talents that you have and not using them? Those all belong to the Lord. He made you the way he did. And it's so obvious in terms of our treasures or our money, the goods that God has given to us, not that you have to give it all to the church, you give a biblical proportion of it. You give it generously. You give it gladly. You give it regularly. Those are the biblical principles around giving. But there's a good portion that you keep for yourself. But it's not really for yourself. It's the Lord's. And you still have to account for every dollar, no matter where you spend it. On your mortgage, on gas for your car, the kind of car you buy, the meals that you eat, all of it. The leisure that you go to, all of it is accounted to the Lord. And as you look at your budget, is it defensible? Are you spending every, this is the way it goes, are you spending every dollar with the kingdom of God in mind? That's, that's what it means to go all in for Jesus to the end. And so how about this? Let's paraphrase, paraphrase Churchill. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all trials and temptations. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without, without victory there is no salvation. Are you all into the end for Jesus no matter the cost? Because a genuine disciple definitely is. Ready for the last one? You say more than. More than ready. If this is you, if you're a genuine disciple, then you would be impacting the world for Jesus. A genuine disciple impacts the world around them for Jesus. Notice verses 34 and 35. Uh, Jesus says, salt is good, but if uh, salt has lost its taste, what does it say there? I need you to tell me because I walked away. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored. Now salt can't really, in that sense, lose its taste. This is a jar of salt. This is a jar of salt actually from the Dead Sea. And in Israel, back in the day, this is where Israel would get its salt, from the Dead Sea. And so um, the Dead Sea, of course, how many people have been to Israel and you float it in the Dead Sea? Raise your hand. It's such an incredible experience uh, to be able to do that. The mineral content is so high, of course, that uh, you become super buoyant. You actually can't 
really go below the surface of the water. You can float rather easily. Um, nothing lives in the Dead Sea, hence its name, because the mineral content is so high. And so um, Israel knew that that was a great source of salt. And so they would take water, harvest it out of the lake, and allow the water to dry. And what would be left would be the minerals that were in the water all dried out. The thing was, though, it's not just salt. So included in uh, what was left, the residue from the evaporated water would be salt and gypsum and uh, carnalite, uh, another mineral called car carnalite. So these three minerals would be together. And what Jesus is really saying here is that in certain cases, the salt itself would also dissolve out. And what you would be left with is just the gypsum and the carnalite. You, you'd just be left with these two minerals. And the thing about those two minerals is they kind of look like salt. You would think in this case that you were putting salt uh, on your food or using salt in the way it was intended to preserve something when in fact there was no salt in there. There was only these other two uh, minerals that were left in front of you. And so in that sense, the salt had lost its taste. The substance that you had that you thought was salt wasn't actually salt. You just had salt looking minerals left but with no taste. Jesus said this, uh, verse 35, it's of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown away. That might look like salt. You see where we're going with this? It might look like salt, but it isn't salt. And in other passages in the New Testament, we have other images of salt that it's meant to flavor the world around us, that it's meant to preserve. Salt impacts the food it touches. A genuine disciple is intended to impact the world that he or she is in. When there's a genuine Christ follower in a home, families are different, blessed. When genuine Christ followers are around, sinners come to faith in Christ. Healing and help flow from the genuine Disciple Worship is transcendent when genuine disciples are together in a room. The word is alive when a genuine disciple speaks it. Jesus said, salt is good. Genuine disciples are good when they have their taste, when they're impacting the world for Jesus Christ. And is that you? As you examine your life, is an impact being made for the kingdom of God? Are you bringing glory to him? Is the spirit of God evident in your life? Are you being the salt of the earth? And Jesus says this. This is where he concludes. He's essentially asking, do you have ears for that? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Notice right at the end of verse 35, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear that you can look the part of a disciple. You can be part of the crowd without being an actual disciple. You can hang out with believers. You can belong to the church. You can be part of a small group. You can have a place of service. You can give an offering. You can sing the songs. You can look and sound the part, and not be a genuine disciple of Christ. But if you love him, if you follow him no matter what, if you're 
all in to the end. And if the world around you is being impacted for his glory, you've counted the cost, then you're not a counterfeit. You're not a knockoff. You're a genuine disciple of Jesus. Amen? It's a hard word. And I I think it would be good for us uh, today just to close in this way. Megan's going to sing a song. It's an old, old spiritual, very simple song. And some of you are going to know that. But I'm going to have you just kind of remain seated. And to use this time to think about some of the things that we've said in this message and the parts that maybe are impacting you right now. And to use this time as Megan sings over us to, to pray, to meditate, to think on these things. Maybe to commit your life to Christ, to recommit your life to Christ, to to repent of some things. God, these things aren't good in my life and I need some changes here. So take this time as a quiet time as Megan sings over us and then uh, Pastor Roger will come and close our, our time this morning. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.